Welcome to the Old Testament Reading Plan Podcast. I'm your host, Joel, and today we're focusing on 1 Samuel 11 through 16. You can find and subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. I've included all the links in the show notes. And if questions come up during the course of your reading, please feel free to ask them by going to bit.ly slash ask hyphen OT. That's once again, bit.ly slash capital A lowercase sk hyphen capital O capital T. While the story of Saul weaves throughout the narrative of 1 Samuel, this week's reading shows us the beginning of the end of Saul's reign. Saul will, of course, be king through the end of 1 Samuel, but it begins to his, his reign begins to go into a downward spiral, really before it could even get off the ground here. There's absolutely a spiritual dimension to Saul being rejected as king, that's absolutely true, but there's also a political dimension. And this is a dimension that I, I want to make sure that we see as we read through the Old Testament. Samuel has never really fully been on board with the whole Saul as king experiment, and although he anointed Saul, he found ways to undermine Saul's authority on a regular, ongoing basis. And I think this is part of the rub of the prophetic voice in the Hebrew Bible. When a prophet speaks and says, thus saith the Lord, well, at least in theory, The prophet is seeking to relay God's words to the people. But what happens if the prophet himself or herself is compromised? What happens if the prophet begins seeing the word of the Lord through the lens of what the prophet wants? Speaking for God is a heavy calling. This is one reason, by the way, that Jesus' church, I think, does better work when we don't have power or even much influence. When we are burdened with power and influence, when we have to hold that weight, we tend to try and keep our power and influence. We're shaped by it, as we talked about last week. We no longer always have the capacity to speak prophetic truth. When we have no wealth, no status, no influence to protect, our prophetic truth-telling has no secondary motivation. We can speak truth full stop. In this case, though, Samuel has a reputation to uphold. Samuel has an axe to grind. Samuel means, uh, when when, when Samuel says, thus saith the Lord, Samuel needs to be very careful, right? Because he can't mean, thus saith Samuel. He needs to be very careful, particularly when God's words sound identical to what Samuel's words might have been. So with all this in mind, Let's get into the text. We begin after Saul has been anointed, coronated, but hasn't yet ascended to an actual position of power, despite the formalities uh, being checked off in his installation as king. This could be on account of the powerful Philistines, who seem later in the reading to have the Israelites under their thumbs. We, we, in fact, we read later that the Philistines didn't let the Israelites have any smiths uh, to create weapons. Indeed, Saul's kingship might have been more that of a vassal king at first. However, once Israel gets attacked by the Ammonites, that rouses Saul, driving him into action. Chapter 11 
has a ton of callbacks to the book of Judges. Jabesh Gilead, which the Ammonites are threatening, that was the only city that refused to answer the call to arms against Benjamin during the Israelite civil war right at the end of the book of Judges. The Spirit of God seizes Saul, much like the Spirit of God would do to one of Israel's judges, in order to lead the people, in order to throw off the yoke of the oppressor, in this case the Ammonites. Saul brutally dismembers a yoke of oxen, similar to how the Levite dismembered his dead concubine uh, toward the end of Judges. And this is done as a means of bringing all of Israel together to do battle against a common enemy in both cases. Indeed, both the terrible assault on the Levite's concubine and Saul's summons here in 1 Samuel, they both take place in Gibeah, which raises a question that doesn't have a clear answer. Is Saul simply following in the footsteps of history, reenacting the failures of those who came before him? Or is Saul redeeming the errors of the past, making up for the inadequacy of his forebears? And this question is left intentionally ambiguous. By doing this, the narrator forces us as readers to hold both possibilities in our mind, sort of like Schrodinger's Saul. If you've heard of the Schrodinger's cat experiment, it's a quantum physics experiment or quantum mechanics experiment in which a cat is simultaneously alive and dead um, until you open you know, where the cat is. Um, this is sort of the same thing. It's not immediately obvious whether Saul is going to be a great king to the people, one they adore, or a terrible king that the people regret anointing. Just like it's not clear whether the cat is alive or dead until we, you know, open up the trunk. The lack of resolution to this question drives the narrative forward. We want to find out about Saul. Each time Saul makes a decision, it tilts us toward one or the other of these possibilities. And, you know, after his route of the Ammonites... He's generous in victory, not holding it over those who had opposed the kingship. And, you know, we think as readers, maybe Saul really is a good th- good king, one who will serve the Lord, one who will teach the people to serve the Lord. Maybe that's who Saul is supposed to be. Now, from here, there's a final ceremony at Gilgal to honor Saul, which Samuel, <laughs> Samuel kind of co-ops this ceremony. Instead of uh, Samuel joining the Israelites in a celebration of Saul's victory and God's faithfulness in spite of the Israelites insisting on a king, what Samuel does is basically what you would do to a dog who messed in the house. Uh, Samuel rubs the Israelites' noses in their decision to force his hand into anointing them a king. Samuel's like, my kids are right here. They could have led you, even though his kids are corrupt as well. Uh, and, and he begins, Samuel does, by protesting his innocence in leadership, basically saying, I haven't taken anything from you. This contrasts implicitly with what Samuel had said that the king would do, which is to take oxen, donkeys, other bribes. And Samuel continues bullying the Israelites until they admit that they had sinned by demanding a king. Now, All of this may be true. Like, it may be a true thing that Samuel is innocent of any wrongdoing. It may be a true thing that Israel did did poorly by insisting on a king. Like, all of that could be right. But the timing here is just garbage. Samuel could have made these points another time and could have instead used his authority here to support Israel by supporting Saul. Samuel, after all, wasn't the one Israel turned to. 
in their crisis with the Ammonites. Saul was. And Saul didn't go looking for this authority. It was thrust upon him. It was thrust upon him by Samuel. Had Samuel offered his wholehearted support to the person of Saul? If Samuel had done that and also worked against the possible excesses that a king might indulge in, Saul's reign might have gone a whole lot better than it ends up going. And this is helpful for us in modern times to remember as well. We might be tempted to oppose anyone who doesn't align with us fully in a given arena, whether theological, political, or otherwise. And instead of burning down the house around us due to a slight disagreement, instead of burning all of the bridges, it's often more helpful in the long term to support even those we disagree with, particularly when we actually share the same goals. Like for, for me, for example, I want to be a pastor who's willing to work alongside any faith community that loves Jesus, any faith community that wants to see other people love Jesus. May we be better than Samuel in this area. May we look for ways to support one another instead of finding ways to cut one another down. After Samuel gives this final speech to the people, we move quickly to Saul's son, Jonathan. Now, Jonathan has just killed, and this is likely an assassination, he's just killed a high-ranking Philistine in Gibeah. Again, we are revisiting the site of serious brutality in Judges, and this is brutality that's going to come up again in the narrative, except it's going to be Samuel perpetuating it. And this uh, leads to war between the Philistines and Israel. Remembering Samuel's words to him back when Samuel anointed him in chapter 10, Saul gathers up the troops at Gilgal and waits for Samuel for seven days, just as Samuel had asked him to. Saul waits all these seven days. Saul waits the maximal length that Samuel had requested before seeing the troops are beginning to scatter. So Saul begins to offer the sacrifice himself. After all, Saul's whole worldview has been... Uh, like the, the way that he knows how to lead is in the, the, the form of a judge. And judges were sort of prophet priests um, in, in Israel to some degree. And so when Saul goes and offers the sacrifice, I think he feels like he's fitting the mold of leadership he should be fitting. So, but Samuel arrives just as Saul is taking matters into his own hands. And Samuel is not happy. Now, whether Samuel meant to do this or not, meant to have such impeccable timing or not, by showing up at the last minute and putting Saul in a tough spot, Samuel challenges Saul's credibility, whether he means to or not. If Samuel had only arrived on time, I wonder how might that have changed Saul's reign as king? Here, Saul is still oscillating between gutsy yet admirable and selfishly rash. Based solely on his actions, there's still some ambiguity in Saul's ascendance as king. But Samuel immediately names, God will not put a dynasty of yours on the throne. You will not succeed as king. And this is just, it's a little bit frustrating to me, if I'm going to be honest. I'm not thrilled about Samuel's actions here. By Samuel's timing, he puts Saul in a tough place. 
So they go to war with the Philistines. And remember, this is a war that likely came about due to Jonathan's assassination of a high-ranking Philistine. And, and during this war, as uh, Saul is planning under a pomegranate tree, Joshua, Jonathan excuse me, and his armor-bearer, they sneak over to a Philistine garrison. And this is definitely a little bit over the line between foolish and courageous, a little bit on the foolish side of that line. After all, Jonathan's the crown prince, y'all. But the Philistines who see them, they're so confident of victory that they're like, hey, come on up, let's fight. Instead of uh, hitting them with slingshots or bows and arrows from afar or throwing spears at them, they invite them on up. And the casualties resulting from this decision are immense. Jonathan and his armor bearer take out 20 Philistines on their own. And with 20 dead, the Philistines likely assumed that a larger raiding party had descended on them. And so a panic envelops their ranks. Much like Gideon's battle against the Midianites, again, you know, call back to Judges, God aggravates the panic to the point that the indentured Hebrew servants of the Philistines switch sides and join the armies of Israel in the fighting. Jonathan's ill-advised yet courageous skirmish led to an Israelite rout. And this is put in contrast to what Jonathan's dad is doing, planning under the pomegranate tree. This is not in the same mold as Israel's judges. Uh, and if the spirit of the Lord were really upon Saul with power, Saul would be at the forefront of the battle, is, is what seems to be implied. However, not all works out perfectly here, especially for Jonathan. In another callback to the judges, Saul makes a foolish oath that redounds upon his child. It's reminiscent of Jephthah's oath, saying, If the Lord delivers me from this battle, then the first thing that meets me when I come to my house, I will give to God. I'll sacrifice to God. And then his daughter comes out and he has to sacrifice her. Uh, in the same way, Saul makes an oath, but doesn't communicate it with all of his troops. So Jonathan does not hear the oath. Um, Saul is concerned here with the troops maintaining a sort of ritual purity. Many times in battle, Israelite troops would avoid eating and they'd avoid sexual activity as a way of consecrating their bodies and therefore their army to the Lord. Much like Samuel has used the word of the Lord to his advantage, Saul kind of tries to do the same here. Yet the men are terribly hungry and Saul's oath ends up cursing Jonathan because Saul does not communicate this with all of the troops. And Jonathan eats some wild honey, much like Samson did, with another callback to Judges, much like Samson did from the lion's carcass. So Saul's curse does some damage here. Jonathan does not die, but Saul's curse has come upon the troops through Jonathan's eating of the honey, and because of that, God refuses to offer the Israelites guidance as to whether they should go up and try to push the Philistines further back. So Saul uses these, uh, these lot-casting devices, which we've encountered before, called the Urim and the Thummim. These are sacred lots, and, and they can help somebody discern what God's will is for something. Now, the, it's basically a yes or no type choice, like flipping a coin, heads or tails. So you can't have it choose between three things. And so Saul, wanting to absolve his household perhaps of guilt, puts him and Jonathan on one side and the rest of the Israelite army on the other. And so when the lot goes to him and Jonathan, that's got to be like, whoa. 
it, we hear echoes here of earlier stories. This time, there's another callback to Aiken uh, when Aiken took booty from uh, Jericho, the Battle of Jericho. Yet, once the lot finally lands on Jonathan, the troops do not allow for Jonathan to be put to death. They influence the king not to kill him because of their loyalty to Jonathan. There's a Hebrew word that's used here. It's rendered delivered or ransomed or redeemed, uh, depending on your version. And that suggests that the troops may have offered something in place of Jonathan. Uh, The narrative doesn't specify, but it, it suggests that there was some sort of trade here. Now, at this point, the ambiguity of Saul's kingship is leaning more and more decisively toward his ultimate inadequacy as a king. He hasn't fully screwed up, like God hasn't abandoned him yet, but the next story are gonna, is going to solidify this through his refusal to totally destroy the Amalekites. So Samuel here is still playing the role of mentor to Saul, whether Saul wants him to be playing that role or not. Um, if you're feeling cynical, you could maybe call Samuel Saul's puppet master, but whatever the case, Samuel commands Saul to slaughter the Amalekites for battling Israel on their way to the Promised Land. But Samuel has also told Saul to do whatever he saw fit to do, for the Lord was with him. And Saul here finds himself in a double bind. He, he, he's called to do what he sees fit to do. He is king, after all. But Samuel has given him a specific command. So what to do? He sees fit to spare King Agag and the best of the flock as a way of caring for his troops and as a way of showing how kings ought to be treated. But that isn't what Samuel told him. Nevertheless, Saul follows what he sees fit to do, and Samuel is incensed. He's not happy about this. Now, it's tough for me to summon the same level of anger towards Saul here. Saul must venture out away from Samuel's shadow at some point, yet Samuel insists on guiding his hand. Samuel is the elder statesperson who will refuse to step down, continuing to steer those under him uh, by holding onto their shoulders sort of thing. Samuel insists on micromanaging Saul, all because Samuel was the one who reluctantly anointed him. I think this is the risk of speaking on God's behalf. When a prophet does it regularly, mixing it up with their own priorities, they can, they can like refuse to stop. Like, and and who's going to tell them? Who watches the watchers? In other words, who's going to tell them that you know Samuel, you're done here. Uh, Samuel, in so many ways, is emulating Eli at this point in his life. When Saul disobeys this time. His explanation is clearly an attempt to curry favor with Samuel. He's basically like, well, I didn't sacrifice these animals because I wanted to... I didn't, didn't kill them. I wanted to sacrifice them to God. That's what I wanted to do. And over and over again, Samuel uh, Saul talks about you know honoring the Lord your God, Samuel. And, and, and I want you to note that throughout this lengthy excuse... Saul seems not to consider Yahweh his God, but Samuel's God. Having been rejected by Saul, God now rejects Saul as king. And I want you to watch throughout Samuel and Kings for robes and cloaks as the narrative continues. Here, Saul reaches out to grab for Samuel and ends up tearing part of his robe. And Samuel interprets this as a Saul having had the kingdom torn away from him. We'll see this symbolism a couple more times in Samuel and in Kings. 
So after this, uh, Samuel violently massacres King Agag. And this is, again, a callback to the mutilation of uh, the concubine of the Levite. The narrative is silent as to, like, the, the narrator, excuse me, is silent as to what the narrator thinks about this. It seems like Samuel is just fed up with Saul and feels the need to take things into his own hands and does so brutally. But by not making a comment, the narrator suggests that might not be wholehearted appreciation for this. So Samuel goes after this uh, to anoint the next king of Israel and needs to do so covertly because if Saul knows what he's doing, well, Saul has total control of the military and Samuel has made himself a stench in Saul's nose. Um, so when he gets to Jesse's house, he wants to anoint the firstborn. Eliab seems to remind him of Saul, uh, allegedly strong, handsome, tall. And God tells him, hey, you can't be looking at what just your eyes can see. It, rely on me, God says. I look at the heart. And so um, Samuel calls for all of Jesse's sons. There's one who's still out in uh, who's shepherding the sheep, and David comes in. Samuel anoints David. Um, and this sets in motion the tension that's going to play out through the rest of 1 Samuel. You have this secret anointing that's taken place with David, the son of Jesse, yet Saul is still king. And to make the plot even thicker, David is summoned to Saul's court as someone who's good at soothing um, with music. But David is, you know, having also been secretly anointed king, there's some tension in the air. And the narrative is masters, masterfully woven with David receiving the power of God's spirit and ascending while Saul receives an evil spirit that torments him, descending into madness. And additionally, on his way into court, David goes through a similar journey as Saul did, although it's condensed. Note that David brings a donkey, bread, wine, and a kid, um, like a, a baby goat. And this is exactly what Samuel served Saul when Saul was anointed king, when Saul was looking for his donkeys. That's all for 1 Samuel 11 through 16. Next week, we'll look at 1 Samuel 17 through 22, and we'll see in these chapters David's ascendancy in the eyes of the people, showing valor in battle and forging friendships with the king's court. And uh, with a mirror image of David's increase, Saul will spiral further and further into paranoia and conspiracy. May God bless you in your reading of Scripture. Thank you.